Good morning and welcome. Uh, quickly, I just want to acknowledge and say happy Mother's Day to our moms and want to thank you for uh, your service and your faithfulness as a mother. And in as much as we want to do that, we also recognize and acknowledge that uh, for some of you, Mother's Day can be a really painful day. It can be a really difficult day. Maybe uh, you have to confront the reality that your mom is no longer with you. Um, maybe you didn't have a good mom, and that happens. And uh, so there's pain in that. Maybe some of you are sitting in this room, and what you want more than anything is to be a mother, and up to this point, God has not <clears throat> hasn't allowed you uh, to do that or to be that. And so we recognize that as well. In fact, uh, I think the, the word that God has for us this morning you might find particularly fitting uh, and appropriate. And so with that, let's turn our attention to the Scriptures First uh, Peter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, and a kind of a different and unique morning in that uh, dealing with a standalone and uh, getting specifically at a, a topic. And so let me move us to where I think God wants to take us here this morning by asking you, uh, have you ever wondered why there's suffering? You ever wondered that? Ever wondered why there's suffering? Ever wondered why there's difficulty? Why God allows that? If God is a good God, why does suffering exist? You wonder that. I haven't either. Let's pray and go home. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because all of us have wondered that. All of us have wrestled with that. Maybe for some of us, far too often and for far too long... Have we been beset and plagued and haunted by this reality? And so why would we engage a topic like this on Mother's Day, no less? Well, I can tell you that the Mother's Day part was purely coincidental. Um, Although it's somewhat fitting because I promise, I promise, I promise, you weren't the perfect little angel that your mom told you that you were. uh, And you probably caused her some suffering at various points along the way. I'm just glad that my mom didn't shout, Amen. Uh, in saying that. Okay, but listen, listen, church. Is it fair to say that in the last few months that it has felt like there's been an inordinate amount of suffering and trial and tragedy for us? I mean, I'm looking around the room and I just, all kinds of different people that are wrestling with death in their family. All kinds of people who are dealing with all kinds of different loss, not just in the form of death, but relationally or with respect to health or with finance, or whether it be conflict or depression or sickness. There has just been this inordinate season of hardship and struggle and difficulty and tragedy that has been in front of us. And so by God's grace, by God's kindness, we ended up finishing Exodus a week earlier than I thought, or at least that I had planned. And so we had this week. Now, seven months ago, I didn't know what we were going to do, but God knew exactly what we were going to do and where we needed to be. And I think this is where we need to be. And so here's the goal for this morning. Two things, two things that we're going to do. We're going to start in First Peter. and We want to see a biblical perspective on suffering. We want to see what God's word actually tells us with respect to this. And then we will take the last 10 to 15 minutes. We'll, we'll head back to Psalm 10 And we'll look at a biblical response to suffering. How do we do this? How do we go before the Lord? How do we wrestle and work through these things? Um, And then, as we did last week, we've built in time at the end of the service. uh, And I'll just tell you that I am 
thinking about this time with a lot of trepidation because it's pretty weighty. Uh, but at the end of the service, uh, we've built in a time for texting. And so if you have questions, if you have things that you're curious about, so as we move through the text, uh, as I'm preaching, if there's something that comes to your mind that you're like, hey, you know, I want to know more about that. Uh, then can we put that phone number up? Is it up? Uh, the number's up. Um, it should be at the bottom of your sermon notes as well. Uh, that's my cell phone. Okay, so it's not some random dude that's going to be reading this text from you. And I will be the random dude reading the text uh, later uh, today. Uh, although hopefully most, if not all of them, end up on the screen. And so as we're moving through, if something pops, if you have a question, you're curious about something, uh, get out your phone, shoot a text, and, and then don't roll over to Instagram or start playing Angry Birds or whatever else. Just put it away or go back to your Bible app and hang out with us uh, where God has us, all right? Um, we're going to get into some deep water here. We're about to get into some really deep water. And what we need more than anything is for the Lord and the Savior of your life and in mine to come and inform and instruct and guide and give us everything that we need. And so I'm not going to do anything else uh, before we go before him in prayer. And so I would encourage you uh, to humble yourselves with me as we go before the Lord and ask him to have his way with us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. And God, I, I, in this moment, I have two things that are just running through my mind. One is I just thank you for your insane kindness towards us, that you are a good God, that you are a faithful God, that you are a kind God. Um, and then I'm thinking about where we're going here in these next few minutes. Some texts that are, that are hard and weighty. Uh, undoubtedly, they will intersect with some really difficult things uh, that have been at play in our lives. And so what we need, Lord Jesus, is for you to come, for you to administer your word to us, for you to give us wisdom and insight, for you to allow us to hear the truths of what you have for us. God, I am keenly aware of my inadequacy and my insufficiency to communicate what you want to accomplish this morning. And so we're all here saying, Lord Jesus, you got to do the work or we got nothing. And so we pray that you would do this. God, not only for us, as always, we pray for another church in the area. And I pray for Mosaic, and I pray for Pastor Adam Viramontes, and I thank you for this brother in you, and pray that you would be working through that body of believers as well this morning. God, we pray that you would come and you would have your way with us now. We pray that you would do the work in and through your people. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Sovereign Suffering. Sovereign Suffering. Maybe you've never even thought about putting those two words together, uh, but they absolutely belong together. And we're in 1 Peter 4. And before I get into 1 Peter 4, let me just give you a brief context of uh, what's going on in 1 Peter and what 1 Peter is about. 1 Peter is a book that is written, written to Christians who literally are scattered because they're being persecuted. They're being hunted because of their faith. And these are people who are living under the rule and regime of wicked Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, you know that this guy was a utterly depraved individual. If you don't, let me just give you a couple of examples to help you frame up who this guy was. First of all, um, Nero hated Christians. And one of the things that he would do is he would take Christians, like people, live people, dip them in wax, and then burn them alive. In his garden that would light his walks at night. That's sick. 
This is a man who would take Christians and he would, uh, he would sow animal hides to them. And then release ravenous dogs to destroy them. So when we get into First Peter here in a moment, th- this is not written to a group of people that, hey, life's been pretty good and they don't really know what it is to suffer. This is written to a group of people that know all too well about suffering. They know all too well about the difficulties and the hardships of life. And so this is what we see in 1 Peter 4. Open your Bibles. Let's look at God's Word. Three things in 1 Peter 4 that I want us to get to here this morning around this idea of a biblical perspective on suffering. First of all, notice this in verses 1 through 6, that a biblical perspective on suffering accepts the reality of suffering. Did you hear that? If you and I are going to think rightly about what God's word is telling us with respect to suffering, we, got to ex- we just have to accept the fact that this is a part of the Christian existence. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. A biblical perspective on suffering accepts the reality of suffering. And right away in verse 1, What Peter is telling his people is we have to think rightly about suffering. Look at what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered, time out. Don't let that statement blow past you. Don't be innocuous to the reality of what he's unpacking for us right here. The sinless son of God suffered. And Jesus' suffering wasn't some unfortunate mistake. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't that, hey, you know, Jesus, you were a little bit overzealous on the whole Messiah thing. If you would have toned down the rhetoric and you would have been a little less hardcore on the whole Son of God thing, then you would have never had to, never have had to go to the cross. It was God's predetermined plan. The pathway for his son was suffering. And so Peter says, listen, Christ suffered. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He's like, man, we have to think rightly about this. So if Jesus' suffering was God's predetermined plan, wouldn't it be naive for you and I to think that there was a different way for us? Hey, this is Jesus' way, but um, I'll take the comfortable route, please. Listen, loved ones, suffering is part of the pathway for followers of Jesus. I would love to stand up here and tell you something different. I just can't with any level of integrity. This is why we have to think rightly about these things. This is why we need good theology. This is why we need good doctrine. This is why these things are important because we have to understand the events in my life and the circumstances of my life. And I have to see them through the grid or through the lens of the scriptures and let God's word speak into them and inform them and not the other way around. Where I want my events in my life and the circumstances to determine what I think of God's word. No, no, God's word is going to inform and instruct us with respect to these things. We have to think rightly about this. I was thinking about this this week, and I was really thinking about the antithesis of suffering is the prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus, you're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And then I started thinking about Jesus himself. And I'm like, did he lack faith to live his best life now? 
Or could it be that that's just false? Right. See, if, if, uh, if it's not true for Jesus, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be true for you and I. We've got to think rightly about this. Secondly, look at verse 2 and 3. Part of accepting the reality is, is realizing that you and I want to live for the will of God and not for ourselves. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He's like, okay, for the rest of the time that you have here on earth, you're going to live for the will of God and you're not going to live for yourself. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 3. For the time that is past, hey, up until this point, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists all these different things that Gentiles do or non-believers do. They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's like, listen, We're done with that. We're done with that. We're going to live for the will of God. We're going to leave behind the human passions and their desires, and we're going to live for the will of God. We're going to live for, for his holiness. We're going to live to be right with God and right with others, and we're going to pursue that to the best of our ability. Loved one, today, right now, will you determine in your life that you're going to live the rest of your days for the will of God? Now, hopefully you've already made that determination, but I would hope and trust that maybe if nothing else, you would reaffirm that determination. God, I am going to live for you and for your will. Because here's the follow-up to this. We've said this the last couple of weeks. If I'm going to live for the will of God, then I have to choose to embrace whatever God chooses to entrust. And it might just be that what God says here, I want you to carry this. In that you're healthy and happy and flush with cash. It might be that you get cancer. It might be that you bury a child. It might be that you lose your job. It might be all three of those things. I'm going to determine to live the rest of my days for the will of God, and I will choose to embrace what God chooses to entrust. We're going to live for the will of God. And then notice this also in verse 4, 5, and 6. Part of um, accepting the reality of suffering is that we understand the cost. We just understand the cost of following Jesus. Verse 4, with respect to this, they, that they there is all the people who are doing those things at the end of verse 3, that you and I used to do those things with, They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So here's the cost. You make a firm determination. I'm not living for the the will of myself. I'm living for the will of God. Now, the people that I used to run and go and do those things with, they're looking at me going, wait, 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 why aren't you doing this with me? And so they're surprised, but it doesn't end at surprise. Where does it go to? They're going to malign you. They're going to attack you. They're going to come after you. They're going to impugn your character. They're going to mock who you are. Got to understand the cost. You ever been on the receiving end of something like this? I'm not sure what's more painful to be on the receiving end of this or for other people to just believe implicitly what someone says about you. Right? Maybe it's something to keep in your mind and my mind the next time we hear something about someone else. But a biblical perspective on suffering accepts the reality of suffering. Notice the secondly in verses 7 through 11, a biblical perspective on suffering seeks to live righteously in spite of our suffering. 
So, so check out where, where Paul or Peter goes with this. So he lays out, okay, hey, Christ suffered. You better arm yourself in the same way of thinking. Uh, you're going to live differently, and they're coming after you. And then he says this. Verse, I'm going to read verse 7 through 11. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, a biblical perspective on suffering seeks to live righteously in spite of our suffering. What is fascinating about verses 7 through 11 is that suffering does not function as an excuse or as some kind of out to abandon God's call to live in a particular way. What what Peter's saying here is he's like, listen, I know that life is hard and I know that things are difficult and, and I know that it feels overwhelming. God still called you to live a particular way. You're to live that way. And then he gives this whole list of things. Of how we're to live. Let's just talk about these four items here briefly. First of all, that we're to be, in verse 7, self-controlled and sober-minded. Sometimes this is hard to do even when we're not suffering, isn't it? But I don't know about you, but what what suffering and hardship and trial and difficulty do for me, uh, that pushes me away from being sober-minded and pushes me away from being self-controlled. Am I alone in that? No, don't, yeah, don't you dare leave me up here hanging by myself. No way I'm alone in that. Right? But it doesn't make me clear thinking. doesn't make me rational. doesn't make me gracious and patient. You get angry. You pop off. You get irrational. And you say, no, no, listen. In your suffering, you're still expected to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, the only way we're ever going to do any of these things is through the power of Jesus. Okay? Um, Let's be clear about that. But there's no excuse. Verse 8, we're to display earnest love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love this next line. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever thought why he says keep loving one another? Why would he say that? I think because he knows people, right? Um. It'd be nice if I just had to choose to love you all once or you just had to choose to love me once and then we could just live in perfect harmony for all of uh, the rest of our lives. But that doesn't happen. Why? Because I'm sinful and you're sinful and we just make some really poor decisions and um, we have to keep choosing to do this because we're going to fail each other. Now, I think the American church has a massive problem when it comes to this or really it's rooted in this is I'm willing to love you once. I'm willing to choose to love you once. Maybe twice, three times if I'm just a super godly dude. But after three, I'm out. This is what we do, church. You offended me. You hurt my feelings. You bothered me. And so we just pack up our bags and head down the road. We don't work through conflict. We don't work through issues. We don't share honestly and openly with one another. We're certainly not displaying an earnest love. Just get up and go. And I think in failing to keep loving one another earnestly, we actually miss out on the back half of this verse. 
We don't cover a multitude of sins, right? And it's not that we hide sins. It's that we're victorious over them. You want to know what brings relational harmony? You want to know what drives peace between brothers and sisters? You want to know what fosters forgiveness? You want to know what develops grace? It's a biblical, gospel-centered love that keeps choosing to love one another. Now, keep in mind, all of this is in the midst of suffering. We display earnest love. Thirdly, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Some of you are like, I love the first half. I kind of want to pass on the second half. Some of you are like, I don't like either of those. Um, Or I can't show hospitality without grumbling. And yet the command here is that we're to show hospitality without grumbling. That we're happy that we're willing to share our homes, our tables, and our lives with others. That's what it is to be hospitable. Now, what happens when you open your home up to other people? Okay, be honest, right? Church is a good place to be honest. What happens? It's inconvenient. What else? Come on, tell me. It's messy. That's what I had in my notes. What else? Judgment. And and things get broken, don't they? Things aren't like they were before people came into your home. Now, so let me just help you, okay? Just in a really practical way, here's what I think Peter's calling us to. Right? To show hospitality without grumbling is, is sometimes we do this like, oh, I'm so happy to have you into my home. That's what I say with my mouth. Well, what's going on in my head? Are you really wearing those dirty shoes on my carpet? <laughs> right? Oh, we're so glad that you're here. But in my head, are you going to wipe up that spill for real? Like, are you just going to leave that there? Or we're so thrilled that you'd have dinner with us. Did he double dip that chip? Like, are you kidding me? I got to throw all the sauce out now. I'm going to show hospitality without grumbling. So listen, the next time that they wear their dirty shoes on your carpet, you just go, Jesus, I'm going to give it to you. It's yours anyway. I'm not going to grumble. They double dip that chip. You just ask Jesus to sanctify that salsa and take away all those germs. You just do what you got to do. But okay, right. That's what he's calling us to. We show hospitality without grumbling. You don't get to cross that in your Bible. You need to underline it. Final thing, right? Seeking to live righteously. We serve one another. We serve one another. Each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Keep in mind, what's the context? Suffering. The context is suffering. And he's saying, go serve other people. What? One of the best responses you and I can have to suffering is to go and to serve other people. Now, that might seem incredibly counterintuitive. You you might hear that and be like, no, no, I'm suffering. I should be served. What was Jesus doing the night before he went to the cross? He was washing his disciples' feet. In fact, here's what's crazy. He washed the feet of the man who, from a human perspective, was going to cause him the suffering that he was going to endure the next day. I mean, that's insane. You think about that. We serve one another. Service just has this profound way of giving us clarity with respect to ourselves, our situation, and the gospel. A biblical perspective on suffering. We have to accept the reality of suffering. We have to seek to live righteously in spite of our suffering. Here's the third thing. And we're about to get into some deep water here. A biblical perspective on suffering sees suffering as a means of God's glory. 
If we're going to see suffering through the lens and the grid by which God intends us to see it, we have to see suffering as a means, as an avenue, as a pathway to God's glory. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's the first thing about seeing suffering as a means to God's glory. We need to expect to suffer. Did you hear that? Now, most of you in the room are old enough to know that, yeah, duh, like, man, I've, I've been around the block. I get it. I know that this is happening. For those of you who have never suffered in your life, hang out for another six months and, and you'll get there, okay? Uh, but we have to expect to suffer. Like, don't be surprised. This isn't strange. But that's a word we need to hear. Because far too often, especially in the American church, when we encounter suffering, that's exactly what we think. Why is this happening? Why would God allow this? Well, you're just in line with the rest of all of Christendom for the last 2,000 years. It's not strange. It's, It's not out of line. It's not out of left field. We live in a broken and sinful world. Why would we expect anything but suffering? God's pathway for his son was suffering. Why would it be different for us? Now, now listen, listen, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the whole of your existence and the whole of my existence will be characterized by just this morbid and, and, and sordid difficulty and suffering in our lives. There's plenty of ways that we encounter and experience God's beauty and his joy and the contentment and his kindness towards us. And in some ways, I think we miss some of that because we're just not good at appreciating and being thankful for all that God has given to us. But he, here's what I'm getting at. I wonder if, I wonder if we haven't deluded ourselves into thinking that the pathway of a follower of Jesus is one that would never encounter or experience suffering. And the follow-up to qu- question of that is, where in the world do we get that from? Because I don't know about you, but when I read this book, everyone in here is suffering. Even God himself. Listen to this quote. This is by a guy named George Matheson. It's a guy who knew a few things about suffering. Scottish guy born in the 1800s, had terrible eyesight by the time he was 18, was virtually blind. Um, And so while physically he really struggled to see, saw with great clarity the reality of suffering through the scriptures. It's a longer quote, so bear with me, but it's totally worth it. He says this, There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitute your pain. That's awesome. Let me read that again. There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist of the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying. Stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. Though the Lord was in the place, but he knew it not. Awakened from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity, and they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. 
Ask Abraham, he'll point you to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, he'll direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, he will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, he will tell you that the songs came in the night. Ask Job, he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, he'll give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. He goes on and he says this. Ask one more. The Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world. He will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying. The Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. And then Matheson summing all of this up says this. He says, you too my soul shall be adorned by Gethsemane. The cup you wished would pass from you will be your crown in the world to come. Suffering is normative for followers of Jesus. Christ himself was not immune to this, but it also happened to be the launch point to their glory. We have to expect this. Secondly, look at verses 13 and 14. Look what Peter says here, as if that wasn't enough to expect it, he's going to press it even further. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. No, I did not misread that. Let me read it again. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That we share in suffering with Jesus. I mean, we don't talk like this in the church. But we should. We should. Rejoice when you suffer the way that Christ suffers. You're blessed if you're insulted for being identified with him. See, we share in suffering with Jesus. And here's the payoff. That when you suffer, you are able to identify with Jesus in a way that simply isn't available to you at any other point or season or time in your life. You ever notice when life gets hard? What happens with your relationship with the Lord? Don't you tend to lean into that? Don't you tend to press into that? You're like, hey, tell me more. Give me more. We draw into that as we identify with Jesus in our suffering and our hearts and something he knows all too well about. We're drawn into a sweet fellowship and communion with him. That doesn't exist outside of that. Listen, this is undoubtedly my Spurgeon has a lot of great quotes. This is my favorite one of his. Listen to what he says. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me upon the rock of ages. Isn't that awesome? I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me upon the rock of ages. He's like, I will embrace the suffering and the trial and the difficulty that Jesus chooses to give to me because I recognize and realize that he is drawing me into a sweet fellowship and communion that doesn't exist otherwise. Beautiful. Thirdly, verses 15 through 18, we glorify God in our suffering. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
That when we suffer as believers, we bring glory to God in the midst of that. So listen to me. Your suffering is redemptive. God uses it. God uses it to glorify himself. God uses it to grow and to change us. It's redemptive in that God brings glory to himself in our suffering. Here's the final thing, verse 19. <laughs> Let me read this verse. If you haven't memorized this verse, you should change that today. Here's Peter's conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Now you can wrap your heart and mind around that. That'll change how you live your life. Listen to what he says. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's what he's saying. There's a divine purpose in your suffering. There's a divine purpose purpose. There's a divine objective to what God is doing, even in the midst of your suffering. And so if I believe, if I really believe in my heart of hearts, that, that all that God is doing in my life is part of accomplishing his will and his purpose, then my suffering is a part of that. And so what we're to do with that is that we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while he does what he deems best. And we do what he's told us to do. And so God is accomplishing his purposes and his plan in and through the suffering that you and I walk through. So listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Look up here. The suffering that you're in right now, the suffering that you walk through, the thing that feels overwhelming or so burdensome, the thing that you're like, I don't know if I can carry this anymore. God is using it to accomplish his good purpose in your life. It's not wasted. It's not lost. It's not futile. It is meaningful and purposeful. And so every single moment that you walk through that, you hold on to the fact that God is accomplishing his good purpose, that God is producing a glory and a righteousness in that. For your good. Don't believe me? You got a scripture for that? Yep, sure do. Here you go. 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction. He's talking about our lives. Doesn't always feel light. Doesn't always feel momentary. A lot of times it feels like more than just an affliction. But in comparison to eternity, that's exactly what it is. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And so while you can't see it, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that God is using it to accomplish his divine purpose for your good. A biblical perspective on suffering. We have to accept the reality that suffering exists. We have to seek to live righteously in spite of our suffering. And we see suffering as a means to God's glory. There's the perspective. Some of that's really hard, isn't it? Some of that feels maybe even like a bitter pill to swallow. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, okay, um, I see it really wrestling with what I do with it. Good, because God gives us an answer for that as well. Flip over to Psalm 10. Now, the truth is, I, we could have gone to a number of Psalms. 
to uh, accomplish this. I just chose Psalm 10 because, I don't know, I chose Psalm 10. That's why. Um, I don't really have a good answer for that. Here's the biblical response to suffering. This is what you and I are to do with our suffering. I'm going to give you a word here. The word is lament. That's a biblical word. It's a theological word. It's an expression of sorrow or grief that shows up in the form of a prayer. And it's not in opposition to praise. It's not in opposition to worship. It's actually a means that leads us or drives us through the hurt and the brokenness and the tragedy and the difficulty back to the place of worship. A guy named Mark Vrogrop says this about lament. He says it's a journey from heartbreak to hope. And so think of this as God's designed pathway to healing through the midst of struggle and tragedy. I just wrote this down for the whole of the psalm, and then we'll talk about the the steps that we see in the psalm, but that you and I would work the process from lament to worship. What do I do with this hurt? What do I do with this heartache? What do I do with this misery? What do I do with this pain? Well, let's look at what God, the people of God's word did with it. And in Psalm 10, you have four steps in this process. And I think each step is crucially important. The order is important. Um, And so we want to work the process. Look at verse 1. We don't know a lot about this psalm. It's pretty generic, which I think helps us to apply it more broadly. But verse 1, here's what we see. Here's the first step. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves and hide yourself in times of trouble? The first step in the process is you and I have to choose to face God. You've got to choose to face God. Here's the psalmist looking out on the circumstances and the situations of his world, which we'll see here in just a moment. He, he sees a lot of things that seem inequitable with respect to who God is and who God has said he will be versus what is actually happening. And so in the midst of all of that, what does he do? He comes and he faces God. He's in front of God going, help me to understand this. Help me to explain this. Where are you going with this? What's your purpose in this? He's choosing to face God. And loved ones, until you and I are willing to do that, we're never moving in the right direction. And so I want you to think about your life for a moment. Because the moment you found out we were talking about suffering this morning, something popped in your mind. Oh, I know what it is. I know what my thing is. I know what my struggle is. Will you face God with respect to that? Will I turn to him? Will I bring this to him? Maybe some of you, you are sitting here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus. And so the first thing is what you need to do is you need to submit your life to him for the first time. Maybe for some of you, you think about suffering and, and you're like, oh, I've got that thing. But you won't face God. Now, God will talk to you all day if you face him. God won't speak to your back. We have to choose to face God. That's exactly what the psalmist does. I'm going to go chin to chin. God, I want to face you. Secondly, look at verses 2 through 11. Once we make the choice to face God, we're to express an honest complaint. Listen to what he says. Let me read this. You might hear this and be like, I had no idea I could talk to God like that. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, 
And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by night. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Pretty honest, isn't it? Ever talk to God like that? Like, no, I thought I'd be struck down dead. This is the expression of an honest complaint. He's bringing his frustrations, and there's a lot of them to the Lord. There's no justice. The wicked prosper. The wicked mock you and curse you, and there's no consequence. Now, loved ones, you and I got to get to the point where we can honestly express ourselves before the Lord. Here's what blows my mind. It's not like God doesn't really know what you and I are thinking and feeling anyway. Right? It's not like you can have this conversation in your mind where you're like, oh, wow, he doesn't know what I really think about this. He's not surprised by any of that. He's not surprised by any question you could bring up. He's not surprised by any doubt or confusion or disbelief or struggle. So why would we pretend like he can't see that and instead lean into this? Maybe you look at this and you go, man, I just, I just had no idea I could even go before the Lord like that. It's the beauty of God's word, teaching us and instructing us what it is and how we're to express ourselves before the Lord. In fact, what's crazy is roughly a third of the book of Psalms are exactly this. They're a lament. You go to, I mean, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? That, that unfolds this same thing, this same process. We've got to choose to face God. And then we have to express an honest complaint. Thirdly, look at verses 12 through 15. Here he asks God to act. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands to the... To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. He's like, God, you need to act. And specifically, the psalmist is asking God to act in accordance with his character. I think the trouble that you and I so often have is we want to start at that point. This is where we start. God, make this go away. God, act, be just, do what you need to do. And yet over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, what you see is that's never where the people of God start in the scriptures. And here's why I think this is really crucial and critical. I think you might be asking God to do something, but you might not be willing to face God. I think that happens far more often than you and I think. God, I want you to fix this, but in reality, my heart is cold and my back is turned towards you because I'm mad. 
But I haven't been honest with you about it. I haven't voiced my complaint to you. And I think the mistake that we make far too often is in the process of expressing our hurt and our disappointment and and, and our complaint to the Lord. Because I run right to this. But I skip past choosing to face God, and I choose to skip past expressing an honest complaint. We can't just run to that place. Because it's entirely possible that we're seeking to bypass parts of choosing to face God or expressing an honest complaint because we're not really ready to deal with that. And in the process, God is dealing with his people. So we've got to choose to face God, express an honest complaint. Thirdly, ask God to act. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 16 through 18. Now keep in mind all that we've read. I've read every, every part of the text up to this point. Tell me if this doesn't feel like a little bit of a shift in the text. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Did they forget a section in the text? Like what happened? This feels like a pretty hard turn, doesn't it? See, this is a man who trusts God's character. And this is the value of the process. This is a value. of the Because as you move through the process, you're reminded of who God is. You're reminded of what God's done and how he's worked. Here's what I'll assert to you. I can't state this definitively, but I'm pretty confident this psalmist circumstance has not changed. But why such an incredible change in the text? I think his heart has changed. Right? That's what's changed. He's been reminded of the character and the nature of God and how he looks at life. And so, loved one, if your perspective of life is predicated upon the events and the circumstances of your life, if that's how you're going to determine whether or not things are good and not upon the character of God, you are signing up for a roller coaster that you have no control over any of the events of your life. And it's why you can feel great on Monday and feel like the world is coming to an end on Tuesday. Because you're hanging on to something that's fleeting and that's going to change constantly. As opposed to anchoring yourself to the character and the nature of God and moving to this place of constancy that you can hold on to regardless of what's going on around you. But you got to trust God's character. So this process from lament to worship. I'm going to choose to face God. I'm going to express an honest opinion. I'm going to ask God to act. And then i got to trust God's character, which is exactly where this individual goes. Let me do this. I had, well, I'll I'll say them in 30 seconds. Here's four suggestions for lament. This is from Mark Vrogrop, who's taught uh, on this in a variety of ways. Um, Here's just four suggestions that he gives with respect to lament. First of all, the lament with a humble heart. Um, Come to God with your pain, come with your confusion, come with your questions, but come humbly. There's never a time to be proud or arrogant before God. Secondly, pray the Bible. The scriptures are full of all kinds of of, of laments that are going to help us work through this process. Pray the scriptures as you do this. Thirdly, we've already mentioned this, but we've got to be honest. Don't fake it. You completely bypass the whole point if we're not honest with God. And then he says this. He says, don't simply complain. This isn't something where you and I get to pop off and I get to remain mad at God and I can go my way. No, the point is to move from a place, right? It's the pathway 
from brokenness and despair and being distraught back into the presence of worship and adoration of God. A biblical perspective on suffering and a biblical response to suffering. We have questions? Okay. Um, If you have some and we have time, you can shoot them in now. Here we go. Uh, So, first question. When it appears that God has not answered prayers for unbelieving family and friends, how should we respond? Um, Now, in fairness, I'll be totally honest. This question actually came in last week, so this is not off the cuff. I did have time to think about this. But a couple things that come to my mind. First of all, uh, when we think about this, uh, prayer is meant to change you and I more than it is our circumstances. Okay? Um, And secondly, when it comes to prayer, timing is a really, really crucial factor. Here's what I mean by that. Um, in fact, I had a couple things happen this week that had I answered the question last week, I would have, it, it just wouldn't have been the same. Um, you and I can be praying for something for months, years, or even decades. And it feels like, it seems like, from my perspective, I have not seen God move or act. And then you get to a definitive point in time and all of a sudden you see things very differently because something, you, you, you've been illuminated of something, you have some knowledge or wisdom of something, something changes. So on Monday of this past week, I was meeting uh, with someone on a totally different matter and she shared with me that she has been working for years and years and years with this small native group down in Mexico. Now here, what gripped me about this was when I was in, I don't know, middle school or high school, Tarahumara, was that like early 90s or something? So the church that, that I grew up in, we had covenanted to pray for this group of, of, of people in Mexico. And so for years and years and years, we prayed for this guy named Hippolito, and I don't know who he is or what he looks like, and we prayed for his family and all this stuff. And I had never knew knew anything of what happened of him or his family or those people. And I'm sitting with this woman on Monday and she's like, oh yeah, for years and years and years, I've worked with the Tarahumara. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't even know anyone was working with them. And I just looked at her, I go, I have prayed for you for years and years and years, long before I ever knew you. And in a way it was God was saying, hey, I answered your prayers. Now, if you had grabbed me last Sunday, I couldn't use that example because I have no idea what happened. But this week, it's totally different. On Thursday, I was in Flagstaff because my brother finalized his adoption. He and his wife have been married for nine years. Ten and a half months ago, they had no children. And the faithfulness of God seemed to be very, very different with respect to that than it is today. So timing is huge. So part of my my, my response to that is, you you don't know when that thing is going to drop. And you have to trust the process. You have to trust that God knows that. Um, You remember the guy who was born blind in John 9? He's an adult before he gets healed. Five minutes before Jesus heals him, does he have a different perspective about praying for his healing than he does five minutes afterwards? Probably just a little bit, right? And I think that's part of it. So in terms of how do I respond? Well, I think you keep praying. I think you tell your friends and family you're praying, and I think you encourage them that, listen, prayer isn't about manipulating God. It's about God changing us. And so maybe you tell them how God's changing you in the process of praying for them around that. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but that's what I got. All right, next. How can you tell if you're suffering for God or suffering due to your own sin or negligence? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) 
Um, well, I think a couple things come to mind. One is, if you know, if you know that there's sin in your life, unrepentant sin in your life, then you know. This is part of it. Now, that, there might not be a direct correlation. Right? Your best friend might not get cancer because you continue in habitual sin. I'm not going to say we're going to make those connections. But part of this is, you know when you're living in rebellion to God. You know when you're choosing to do your own thing. You know when, hey, you know what, I'd rather just do my thing instead of God's thing. I think some of the suffering, um, so I think it's spiritual warfare. And one of the things that I think is really helpful to think about with spiritual warfare is the contrast between of how God deals with people and how Satan deals with people. Satan accuses, God convicts. So Satan will tell you that you're a bad person, that you're worthless, that you're terrible, that you're, um, you shouldn't live, whatever it is. God will tell you when you spoke to your wife that way, you sinned against her. Do you see the difference in that? One is an accusation. One is conviction. The other is pointed and it seeks towards change and healing. The other is something that you have no ability to change. And I think sometimes we look at our suffering that we look at this and we go, um, maybe, maybe, maybe there's sin or negligence in my life. Maybe I've abdicated a role. Maybe I've pushed against something. Um, maybe there's spiritual warfare. And sometimes you're just not going to know. And that's where... Hey, Psalm 10 becomes really helpful. That's where the reality of God is using this for his divine purpose in my life becomes really helpful. Um, that's where this is bigger and, and greater uh, than I am. Uh, it's beyond just, is it negligence? Is this God's, all of it is God's purpose. But the root of it, maybe how you address some of that might be different. Good question. I don't think I actually answered it, but... I don't got anything else for it, so we're moving on. All right, next question. How do we avoid... Oh, I don't know who wrote this. Thank you. Thank you for asking, how do we avoid suffering all alone? It kills me. It kills me. That you could show up on a Sunday morning, that you could go to your men's group or your women's group or your life group, that you could sit down with brothers and sisters, and for whatever reason, you don't feel the freedom to go, here's where I'm at. Now, some of that, some of that might be on you. Some of that is this facade and this sick game we've played in church for decades where you got to walk in the door and you got to be happy and you got to have your life together and, and you got to be a good person and you don't drink or cuss or smoke. What is that? We are broken, fallen sinners. And if God were to lay bare you and I right now, it'd be an embarrassment of who we really are. But honestly, wouldn't we rather be a community where it's just like, oh, I already knew that. And I still love you anyway. Hey, I didn't know that about him. And we praise God for how God's at work within him. See, part of suffering alone is the courage to go, I need help and I got to go to someone. Part of this church is we have got to get better 
at someone coming in going, I'm addicted to porn. All right, let me help you. I'm addicted to meth. Okay, let me help you. I had an abortion 30 years ago and I've never told anybody. Okay, let me help you. I've been cheating on my husband or my wife for the last 10 years. Okay, let me help you. I'm not saying there's not consequences. I'm not saying that there's not issues. I'm not saying that there's not things that we have to work through in that. But God help us that we could get to the place. Or we're not just like, oh, I won't. Um, but I could create a laundry list of who I am that you would just be like, that guy needs to quit. <laughs> and I would go, no, no, break yours out because you're right there with me. You have a fallen, rebellious, sinful pastor. By God's grace, I look a little bit more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. But there's a long way to go. And I hope you could say the same thing about yourself. But suffering alone, oh, God help us, God help us, God help us. That we just have the freedom to be like, I'm, I'm done with this game. Church, we've got to be done with this game. We've got to have the freedom to just be honest. And listen, your issue isn't my issue. And it's not his issue or it's not her issue. But all of our issues put Jesus on the cross. And one isn't better than the other. Sin is never cute. It's always ugly, and it's always insanely costly. Great question. Thank you. Next one. What if we fail in our suffering? I'm not even going to read the rest of the question for a second. You will. You will, right? I mean, on the heels of that last question, you will. Okay, what if we fail in our suffering? What if we run to our sin and lose faith? Can God be glorified in this? So a couple of pieces in this. First of all, you will fail in your suffering because your name isn't Jesus and you're not the sinless son of God. So, so let's lean into the fullness. of That's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? That we fail? Isn't that what's so glorious about it? Tim Keller put it really well. What, what did he say? He says, the, the gospel, um, he says, the gospel is news. It's a report of what has happened. It's not counsel of what you and I do. See, that's helpful. The gospel is, oh, Jesus freed me. Not, I have to be something. So you will fail. Um, What if we run to our sin and lose faith? Well, that just means the gospel needs to be more glorious in your life. What you need to do is don't run to your sin. Go run back to Jesus. It's what took you to him in the first place. And this is the reality that you and I need the gospel in, in our lives every day. I don't think that the gospel is this one-time thing. I prayed a prayer, I'm good, and I'm done with it. No, no. You need the gospel of Jesus every day. And the longer I've been the Christian, the more I appreciate it, the more I love it, and the more I need it. And the more I run to it, honestly. So what if we run to our sin and lose faith? Uh, Well, you will probably, you will run to sin. Um, My encouragement is what you would do is you would pick yourself up and you would run to Jesus. Can, Can God be glorified in this? Better believe it. It's glorified in, in, in all things. Because in the end, well, I, I guess maybe I shouldn't be presumptive, but in the end, God will choose to move and work to reveal himself, to draw his children back. And not only in the... That's what I love about the gospel, right? It's not that I, I sinned until I was a certain age, I got saved, and now I never sin. I sinned until I was a certain age, I got saved. I sinned even more. Um, I'm still saved, and I still sin a lot, and yet I'm, God still holds me and keeps me. It doesn't say a whole lot about who I am, but man, it sure says an awful lot about who God is, doesn't it? 
So you better believe he'll be glorified in that. We got one more? Okay, let's do one more. How do we respond when we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters dying of illness and God chooses to take them home? So let me, let me say two things about this. One is we thank God for his mercy that our brothers and sisters are in the presence of God. We thank him that they're freed from the bondage of sin and death, that they're freed from pain and hurt, that they're freed from the terminal illness that was ravaging their body or their mind in whatever way uh, possible or whatever way that that was playing out. We thank God for that. We thank God that there's actually a hope after death and that they're experiencing that. And then we grieve. We're terrible at grieving as a society. We, like, we won't even call death, death. We've got all these weird euphemisms that we use to describe death. We're, we don't even want to say the word death because I think we just don't even know what that looks like. And so we thank God for his kindness in taking them home. And then we grieve and we mourn and there's sorrow. And we realize that there's loss. I'm going to look out at this room. I mean, how, how many people, don't raise your hand, but I mean, how many people have lost a, a sibling or a parent? Or, I mean, it's, it's just insane in the last, I mean, this week, we've got people in our church wrestling with that. So it's not lost on me how close to home this is. So we thank God that he's freed them. And then we mourn and we grieve. And that's a process that's hard, that's difficult. Um, and, and listen, listen, people will do it differently. They'll do it differently. And so you might sob like crazy for a week and you're good. And your brother or your sister or your mom or your aunt, whoever it is, they might not shed a tear for six months and then they might come off the rails. Your way isn't the only way. When you're good, go, go pull Galatians 6 and bear up their burdens and love them. When you're not, you be honest and you don't suffer alone and you ask people to come alongside you and help you. But you let people grieve the way that they grieve. It, it just won't look the same. And we give people the freedom to do that. All right, let me pray. Jesus, we, we come before you, and, and God, this, is, this stuff's heavy and weighty. Um, think about this last question of death and just confronted with my own mortality. In this moment, thinking about, like, one day that'll be me. Someone else will be talking about Maybe to my kids or to my wife or my grandkids. or I'll be gone. I'll be on the other end of it. This stuff's hard and it's weighty, and yet it, we're confronted with our own limitations. We're confronted with our own issues and shortcomings. God, we realize that in our suffering and our pain and our hardship that there are things that we see aspects or perspectives of, but not the entirety of it. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, humble hearts to embrace what you choose to entrust to us. God, help us to be honest about our situations. God, help us to move from a place of lament to worship. 
I won't say that casually, but I love how your word moves us through that process. Would you help us in that? Would you grow us in that? Would you help us to be honest and real with one another and real with you? God, would you have your way with your people? We pray this in your name. Amen. Let me do this. Let's stand. Um, Prayer people, whoever you are, can you come up? Elders, deacons, can you move to the walls? If you need prayer, come grab one of these people. Let us pray with you. Pray over you, with you, for you. Um, Folks up front, you'll see some of our elders and deacons along the the side walls and the back walls. Happy to grab you, pray with you, for you, um, whatever you need. I I don't want to just be like, hey, have a great Mother's Day, go. I get that this is kind of weighty and some of us maybe need some time to process, think, and pray. So I'm going to pray a benediction over us. And then if you need someone, go grab them. Talk with them, pray with them. Um, But after I pray, we will be dismissed. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send us out. God, help us to be honest and real about our struggle and our plight. Help us to be real and honest about how you're at work within this. And we pray that as we go out from here today, uh, God, that you would um, go with us. God, helping us to be honest uh, of where you have us. Uh, Help us to see your hand in, in, in in all things within our lives. And we trust you. God, we trust you, we trust you, we trust you that you are over all things. And so would you send us out now for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. Faith Church, you are loved.